It's now my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Susan Phillip. Uh, she's already had um, some uh, transition comments. Um, she's currently the Deputy Health Officer and Director of Disease Prevention and Control Branch at the San Francisco Department of Public Health, which I still think has been one of, is one of the premier, if not the premier, public health department uh, around the country and often leading in trying to get answers to some of the questions that you've already raised. And so we welcome Dr. Phillips' comments. Thank you very much. Um, good morning. And I will not be offended if people need to stretch. I know you've been sitting for a long time. And um, uh, I want to thank uh, for you all and the organizers for the uh, opportunity to come and talk with you about my favorite subject, STDs. And I know that there are a couple, I see a couple of STD experts slash enthusiasts in the audience. And hopefully by the end of the talk, you will have more of you join the club. Um, and, you know, the, the slides that Annie showed in the graphs um, in San Francisco, I am the STD controller in San Francisco, so that's, that's on me. And we are trying to think of creative ways to, to try and decrease the numbers that we have, but I'm really happy to have the chance to talk with you about um, STDs and, and clinical management. So here are uh, my uh, disclosures that you can read. And um, for the learning objectives for this session, we want to be, you to be able to describe the rationale for thinking about STD screening in your HIV primary care um, clinic patients and why that's important. Um, thinking about the anatomic sites that should be considered for gonorrhea and chlamydia screening in asymptomatic HIV-infected men who have sex with men. And then understanding why pregnancy testing and stating why it's a priority in women of childbearing potential who are diagnosed with syphilis. So I want to start by um, just saying that I think this is an important takeaway slide, that, that this is a, uh, an app, a free app that CDC puts out that is available that has the 2015 most recent version of the treatment guidelines on it, available for um, both iOS and Android phones. And because of limited time in 30 minutes, I'm really going to be able to focus only on um, gonorrhea and syphilis. And so I really you know, want you to have this resource available. I, I use it all the time as well to have uh, full treatment guidelines at your, your fingertips. It's really useful. So, um, you know, we've gotten a preview already about um, syphilis and the increases that we've been seeing throughout um, the United States. These are um, data from CDC national data. In 2015 surveillance report, which just came out for STDs, the reports of uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, the three major reportable STDs, of the highest that they've ever been that CDC has ever reported in 2015. And they have been increasing over time. And you see that uh, men who have sex with men are disproportionate risk, or uh, at disproportionate risk for primary and secondary syphilis. And when we look collectively throughout the country, um, in MSM, the percentage of people who have primary and secondary syphilis who are HIV infected is 50%. And we generally see that for all of syphilis in San Francisco as well and um, in California. So it becomes really important to think about this as part of um, HIV care. And when studies and reviews have looked um, worldwide at what has been published about and known about um, STDs and people who are HIV positive, we see that there's a very high um, point prevalence, um, about 12 to 15% of people have some um, STD. And so to compare that to a general population, it's not exactly apples to apples uh, because this includes some um, the viral um, STDs as well. But if we're just looking at the recommendation, a U.S. A grade A recommendation of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force for chlamydia screening in women under 25 in the general population, you know, we'd consider it a successful screening program if there's a 3% prevalence and we we'd keep doing the screening. So we see how much um, higher the prevalence is and um, want it to continue. So as a result of knowing that there's a high prevalence and that there's an impact of screening, there have been myriad recommendations from 
um, guidance and guidance from uh, leading groups um, and uh, uh, practice organizations about screening for STDs. So one of the most recent ones uh, that came out in 2016 was a uh, again a reinforcing recommendation for syphilis screening in uh, non-pregnant adults and adolescents by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. It gave it a grade A recommendation and in particular called out uh, men who have sex with men and HIV positive persons. And in our practices, that is a lot of the, the overlap in the patient populations that we see. So thinking about this is really important. So we know that thinking about screening and doing the screening and treating patients who are positive are extremely important, and yet collectively it's, it's hard to do a good, a good job of this. So these are data um, from Barry and colleagues that looked at seven um, HIV clinic populations and looked to see uh, recommended STD screening for um, gonorrhea and chlamydia and syphilis. So you see gonorrhea, chlamydia in the dark black line, syphilis is the medium gray line, and lipid screening um, is the lightest gray line. So we may not be doing a great job of treating people for, for lipids, but we are screening them at least. Um, and so you see for all patients broken down and then MSM, men who have sex with women and women, that the uh, syphilis um, screening is somewhat closer to you know, the high level of lipid screening that exists, but that chlamydia and gonorrhea screening lags below that. You know, and there are multiple reasons for that, but probably the biggest one is that you're able to do uh, an RPR just with a blood draw that can be done at the same time as other blood draws, whereas the chlamydia and the gonorrhea screening takes additional work and, cl and uh, collection of samples. So this is a barrier that we have to overcome, and in public health, we really want to do a better job of this, and this is a large part of my work is figuring out how to incorporate routine screening practices and, and changing and protocols so that screening can happen with minimal impact on the provider visit. Um, and Kaiser San Francisco actually does a great job of this and really has done a lot of self-collected uh, specimen work and so on. So um, I'm happy to talk to people afterward if you have specific questions about that. So we're going to talk a bit about why it's important. We sort of established the, the epidemiology and the need for screening. Um, so let's move on to a case. So um, this patient, David, is a 28-year-old HIV-positive man, new to your practice. Um, he has a high CD4 count. Viral load is undetectable on his combination ART. He feels fine and is here to establish primary care. His partners are all men. During the visit, he says while he's not had any symptoms or been notified of any exposure, he would like an STD check with you today. And what would you recommend? So your choices are, one, urine for gonorrhea and chlamydia, two, doing a syphilis serology, three, doing a rectal gonorrhea and chlamydia swab, four is a pharyngeal gonorrhea and chlamydia swab, five is gonorrhea and chlamydia from three sites, urine, rectal, and pharyngeal, and a syphilis serology. Um, the sixth choice is no screening is indicated because he's asymptomatic in front of you today, um, or seven, would you like more info before deciding? Okay, so 81% of people wanted um, to do uh, a three-site testing, urine, rectal, and pharyngeal for gonorrhea and chlamydia, and do a syphilis serology. So um, I, I think it's great. Everyone is thinking very broadly, thinking about extragenital screening, um, which is, which is um, awesome. And then 13% said 
that they would like more information before deciding. I think this is also really reasonable. Um, in the, the text of the question, you know, we didn't say anything about whether he actually has um, receptive anal sex with partners or performs oral sex with partners. So, uh, I, you know, either one of these, I think it's great. I wouldn't say either of these is wrong, but it's good to be thinking about it and, and sometimes a further conversation can help uh, decipher which of these tests is needed. But it's always better to, to think more broadly and then narrow it down rather than not thinking about it at all. Um, so the idea of, of screening, so screening really being defined as uh, performing uh, t these tests on, on patients who have no symptoms at all and are, are, are coming in feeling fine. So the national recommendations um, in the CDC guidelines in 2015 say for any HIV-infected patient on entry and then at least annually, um, but they go on to say as often as every three to six months in those at higher risk, and certainly in San Francisco, given our very high rates, we do recommend more frequent um, screening in sexually active persons. So for gonorrhea and chlamydia, think about screening there, and then to inc include pharyngeal and rectal screening if the patient reports um, anal and oral sex. And we'll uh, talk a little bit more. I'll show you some of the data behind that. Syphilis screening as well. Hepatitis C serology, that's what they um, we talked about and, and was written into the guidelines. Certainly people that have had previous um, hepatitis C have been treated and cleared, then you might think about um, RNA, but there are no guideline um, specific statements sort of addressing that. Hepatitis A and B serology on entry, and then to vaccinate people, clearly, if they're negative. A trichomonas screening is recommended in women. Um, and the test that, that you use really depends on, you know, what you have available. Wet mount is a, a terrible test, but clearly if it's there in the office, that's something that could be considered. It's only 50% sensitive. There are point-of-care rapid tests that are also available for trichomonas, and there is nucleic acid amplification tests in the laboratory that are available as well. So any of those are acceptable, and the guidelines don't um, distinguish between them at the moment. And then um, HPV, um, anal cancer uh, screening, um, the guidelines for CDC talk about annual digital rectal exam, and then they do talk about some centers performing um, anal pap and um, high-resolution endoscopy, but um, the, the CDC guidelines at this point feel that there are not enough, there are not enough data to make a clear recommendation to do that. So talking about screening and talking about three-site testing, and, and so many people here um, really chose that answer. I think this is probably preaching to the to choir, but just to reinforce and show you the data sort of behind this. These are um, data from our uh, STD clinic in San Francisco, City Clinic, and were published in 2005, and then we've updated them just to see if we were still correct in, in sort of our, our data and if, whether things still stand, and they do. So on the right, um, top and bottom, is gonorrhea, and on the left is, is chlamydia. Um, rectal infections are on the top and urethral infections are below. Red are the patients who came in um, who were asymptomatic but were found to have a test on screening. And blue are the people that are symptomatic. And just for the sake of time, let's just focus on, on gonorrhea. So if we see for urethral infections with gonorrhea, for the most part, you can wait for someone to come in with symptoms because urethral gonorrhea, about 90% of the time is going to be symptomatic and people are going to have dysuria or frank discharge and sometimes it's, it's quite dramatic. Um, and 11% of the time, they'll be asymptomatic. But if you look at the rectal site, it's almost exactly opposite. 91% are asymptomatic and will only be detected on screening, um, specific site, specific screening with a swab, and 9% are symptomatic. So um, here, I think very clearly, um, waiting for someone to present with symptoms before considering a rectal screening for chlamydia or for gonorrhea is, is not uh, really going to find the majority of infections and be able to, to get people treated. 
The next question that often comes up to me um, uh, in thinking about this in clinical practice and that people want to know is, well, is it okay to, s to just screen a single anatomic site? Could we just have urine kind of be the canary in the coal mine and let us uh, treat if that's positive and we'll assume that we're treating the other sites even if we haven't screened? And unfortunately, that's not correct. We will miss the majority of cases. So for chlamydia, um, in that case, if you just screen urine um, from our data, we see that we would have missed 77% of cases, and for gonorrhea, 95%. So three-site testing, depending on the types of sex that patients have, is really important in, in, in order to know and to treat people uh, effectively. And which tests should you be using for gonorrhea and chlamydia screening? So both um, the CDC and the Association of Public Health Laboratories together put out a statement in 2014, and the guidelines say that um, nucleic acid amplification tests are the tests of choice, both for diagnostic testing in symptomatic patients and for asymptomatic screening. Um, and the optimal specimens for doing this in women um, are actually vaginal swabs, slightly preferred over urine. Um, and the reason that they give is, is slightly increased sensitivity. And we could talk about you know, the myriad reasons for that if, if people are interested. Um, but I really like vaginal swabs because they're just much easier in terms of the collection process. And you, you're not aliquoting urine and dealing with it. And they are validated for self-collection. So there are ways, again, thinking about how we decrease the burden on clinical systems to do this screening where women can go to a bathroom, self-collect, and then just hand it to uh, part of the clinic staff to be sent in, which is great. For men, the specimen of choice is first catch, first catch urine. Now, importantly, the extra genital testing that I just talked with you about, and we all know the importance of as a result of those uh, data and many others that have been replicated throughout the country, are not FDA cleared, unfortunately. We're working on trying to um, start up studies that are going to potentially submit, have manufacturers submit for FDA clearance, but they're not yet FDA cleared. And so what has to happen is that individual laboratories have to go through a validation process in order to use those results for clinical care. It's not that difficult to do, but it is a bit of extra work. Um, Many laboratories throughout the country are now doing this, and large laboratories like Quest and LabCorp have done the validation. So um, it's, it's promising that more and more people have access to these, but we know that it's still a limitation. So the FDA clearance um, process will be really important to ensure access for as many people as possible. Okay, so I'm going to switch to talk now about um, individual uh, organisms and, and STDs, and we'll start with gonorrhea. And gonorrhea in 2013 was identified as one of the top three drug-resistant um, microbial threats in the United States by CDC. And gonorrhea treatment, um, correct uh, gonorrhea treatment by clinicians, has been identified as one of the, the key strategies to reducing the risk of drug-resistant um, Neisseria gonorrhea. So the current recommended gonorrhea treatment um, at any anatomic site, the pharynx, the rectum, or urogenital, is ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams IM uh, once, um, and azithromycin, one gram orally once. And so this is dual treatment for gonorrhea, and um, so the azithromycin um, is added regardless of the chlamydia result. Doxycycline is an alternative, but azithromycin is the preferred. So um, if you're treating a patient uh, uh, empirically because they're coming in with, uh, with uh, urethritis or, or symptomatic, um, and the NAT is positive later for gonorrhea, then you, know, you have to consider repeating uh, the combination with ceftriaxone to meet treatment recommendations. So I've said three days here, but you know, I'll say that there actually is a probably a little bit of leeway. You may not always need to redose if the azithromycin is the 
agent that's taken first. So most experts will st state that because of the very long half-life of azithromycin, it's probably okay up to, up to five days. But the California Department of Public Health is more conservative, and so they don't like um, waiting any longer than 24 hours, and they say that you need to reduce, redose both. In most likelihood, that three-day example kind of we just gave up to five days is probably okay, again, if the azithromycin is given first. But if the um, other, uh, in the other scenario where ceftriaxone is given first, let's say that uh, the patient is given a prescription to, to get azithromycin at the pharmacy and there is a delay, then you must readminister both simultaneously. So um, I think that's, uh, that's helpful, you know, to keep in mind in thinking about how to address these um, issues. So, you know, we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop with resistant gonorrhea. Luckily, the national um, surveillance data, which is only coming right now from STD clinics like ours and others across the nation as part of CDC's gonococcal isolate surveillance program, shows that the uh, percentage of isolates with decreased susceptibility to the cephalosporin class of antibiotics has stabilized or come down a bit, and we think that's because of the great job that clinicians throughout the country are doing and using dual treatment, but, you know, we don't know. And then there are always these troubling reports that come out from time to time. Um, as we saw at our last STD prevention conference at CDC, our colleagues from Hawaii really reported on seven isolates with very high level azithromycin resistance. And so remember, as, as um, Annie mentioned, monotherapy with either macrolides or fluoroquinolones is not recommended um, for gonorrhea. And it's very concerning that five of the seven also had reduced susceptibility to ceftriaxone, and this is the first time that that dual reduced susceptibility has been documented in the U.S. Um, we haven't had any frank treatment failures yet in the U.S. with our recommended dual treatment, but um, we'll have to watch and see. Okay. Switching now um, to syphilis and talking a bit about this, because I, I know that syphilis is the, the STD, just from the questions that came up already this morning, and just from fielding a lot of questions from clinicians throughout San Francisco and, and elsewhere, syphilis is the uh, STD that causes the most clinical questions to come up and, and is the most problematic in terms of um, what to do with patients and then also some of the potential um, sequelae and bad outcomes that, that could be caused. So the natural history of syphilis, just as a quick reminder to people, we group the stage very broadly, both for public health and treatment reasons, into two groups. We call early um, as infection that has occurred one year or less. And this is a public health priority group because they are then infectious to their partners and if we're trying to interrupt and, and uh, stop the spread of syphilis, um, then this is the group that we intervene on. And then shorter treatment course is also required for early syphilis. And late syphilis is greater than a year. Lower public health risk, but requires longer treatment. And, and clearly we wanna make sure those folks are treated too for their own health. And within early, there's primary, which is the initial site of inoculation of T. pallidum, uh, treponema pallidum, the organism that causes syphilis, um, into, um, into a susceptible host. And painless chancre occurs at the site of inoculation and lymphadenopathy. Um, those are the two hallmarks. Um, after a few weeks, a patient can develop secondary syphilis if they are not treated. And this is then the spread of the treponemes more systemically. Systemic symptoms, including flu-like symptoms and malaise can occur. And the hallmarks of this phase are mucocutaneous lesions. So uh, cutaneous rash, mucus patches in the mouth, uh, condyloma lata, 
Um, and then alopecia, hepatitis, and glomerulonephritis can occur. And CNS involvement, um, including eye and ear signs and symptoms, can occur. But I put this point at the bottom just to reinforce that neurosyphilis can occur at any stage. And we do know that T. pallidum is a very neurotrophic organism. And, um, and so it's important to always think about um, getting a history and doing a very careful neuro exam and asking about visual and ocular symptoms as well. There's a latent phase that occurs both between primary and secondary, and then after secondary as well. So latent, by definition, means that there are no signs or symptoms any longer, but um, the uh, infection is detectable by serologic testing. Relapse into secondary is possible in early latent. So within the first year, it is possible to, to relapse back into secondary, um, have those infectious lesions again. So it's part of uh, why we consider all of early syphilis as important for public health um, intervention. And then tertiary are the late complications, which are exceedingly rare now in the modern antibiotic era, but include um, skin, heart, and brain um, complications, some of which are non-reversible even with treatment and have to do with immune-mediated um, destruction of, of tissue. Okay, so it wouldn't be a good talk without um, pictures. So um, let's let's look at some of these pictures. So here's the classic presentation of primary syphilis. Here is a, a, a clean-based, um, non-painful ulcer with rolled edges at the coronal sulcus. So this is sort of what we might expect and, and recognize as a chancre. But it's important to recognize that um, syphilis can um, have many different forms. This is a patient um, at City Clinic who was dark field positive with these lesions. It looks very much like herpes, but uh, they were multiple small chancres. And people with HIV have been reported to have atypical presentations of their primary syphilis. Um, in women, the chancre uh, may be um, at the introitus. Um, because it's not uh, painful particularly, they may go unrecognized. It can also be uh, perianal, as you see there. Um, and there can also be chancres of the mouth. So it's really important in evaluating someone for syphilis to really do a full exam, looking at skin, um, looking um, posteriorly, anteriorly um, in the genital region, the perianal skin, and looking at the mouth as well. Okay, so secondary syphilis, the diffuse rash of secondary syphilis can look like other rashes. It can look like a drug rash. And it's just important to think about it um, if you are seeing patients who are, uh, who are men who have sex with men, who are HIV infected, you know, to consider this in the differential and certainly send a RPR is easy enough. The classic uh, finding of a rash on the soles of the feet and on the palms um, is great if it's there, but it can be absent up to 20% of the time. So it's helpful if it's present. So again, it's helpful to have the patient undress completely. These are condylomata lata. They're wet-looking lesions. They're distinguished from sort of common genital warts by being flatter, kind of wet-appearing. They don't have that heaped-up appearance of uh, uh, condyloma acuminata, and they are... Um, they're very infectious. So, you know, the, the books say teeming with treponemes. Teeming is the, the quantitative measure. Um, and so you don't want your hand to be ungloved next to the condylomata lata. This is the, this, that's the patient's hand there. Um, looking in the mouth is important too. These are mucus patches, um, white, um, and they, they are not removed by uh, using a, a tongue blade. And they, they resolve remarkably quickly. This is one week later after benzathine penicillin. So it's pretty remarkable. All right, so here is another case. A HIV-positive woman, marginally housed, exchanges sex for drugs, treated for secondary syphilis two years ago. Most recent RPR was non-reactive six months ago. At this visit, again, no symptoms or physical findings, but a week later, you get the RPR result from the lab, 1 to 64. How would you treat her? Would you give her benzathine penicillin 2.4 million units IM once? Would you give her benzathine penicillin 2.4 million units IM once weekly for three weeks? Do you feel like you need more information before you proceed? 
Do you do nothing? Is this as unlikely to be syphilis, um, true syphilis in her? Uh, or do you perform an LP to rule out neurosyphilis? Sounds like good STD music. Okay, let's see what people thought. Oh, okay, so 46% um, wanted to treat with benzathine penicillin um, times one, 37% wanted to do it times three. 10% um, needed more information, and 7% wanted to, to rule out neurosyphilis. So let's go forward. This is great. I'm glad there's a little bit of a spread there. So there's no change in 2015 in the um, syphilis guidelines. So for primary, secondary, and early latent, for all early um, syphilis, the recommendation continues to be 2.4 million units of benzathine penicillin IM in a single dose. And for late latent, that is given um, th three, in three doses over one week intervals. Neurosyphilis, of course, re requires higher levels um, of drug, and aqueous uh, crystalline penicillin is recommended. Um, importantly, there is rec there's no enhanced efficacy of additional doses, and um, it is important because in recent surveys, and even just as we saw in this room, there um, is a, a tendency for clinicians to recommend additional doses because a person has HIV, and there are no data to back that up. Um, importantly, you know, we mentioned this, benzathine penicillin is, is not widely available. It continues to be on allocation. If you have patients that need treatment, probably one of the best things that you could do to try to get um, benzathine as quickly as possible is work with your local or state public health, because we have been um, trying to uh, even out some of the distribution across providers. Um, but they're saying it's going to resolve in a few months, so let's see if that's true. So, you know, addressing this question of our, is, is more treatment, are more doses beneficial in HIV? Uh, at the last treatment guidelines, you know, the evidence came down and the experts really said no. And here's a new um, study that has just coming out, come out in CID that really reinforces that as well. So this was a study that randomized um, people with um, early syphilis to either getting a single dose or getting the three weekly doses of benzathine penicillin. So on the left, um, you see the standard dose, one, one injection, and on the right, it's the three. And they were analyzed by intention to, to, to treat and per protocol, and they really found no difference between the groups. So again, reinforcing the CDC recommendation to you know, just give one dose. We hard, to get it, hard enough to get it anyway, so you might as well um, use, uh, follow the recommendations and just give one dose of treatment. So if you cannot get uh, benzathine penicillin or if a person absolutely refuses to take a shot, which happens to us at City Clinic, then you can use alternatives as long as they are not pregnant um, and, and or truly penicillin allergic, and if they're penicillin allergic uh, and non-pregnant. Uh, doxycycline, 100 milligrams um, BID for two weeks, or you can use uh, tetracycline as well. Um, ceftriaxone is an option. And you know, azithromycin is still in the guidelines, but I really, uh, I feel like for our mentality, we should just strike it off because it's not recommended in men who have sex with men. It's not recommended in HIV positive persons. So basically for all our purposes, we, we shouldn't really consider it. In pregnancy, benzathine is the only recommended therapy. There are no alternatives. 
Another question that often comes up is when do you, when do you need to do an LP um, in syphilis? And um, you know, there were some people that were concerned with our case that, that we should think about an LP there. Certainly if there are any clinical signs or symptoms um, consistent with neurosyphilis, then you should move to doing an LP. Um, serologic treatment failure after treatment is another time in which you, you should at least seriously consider it. Um, and then, of course, evidence of active tertiary syphilis, which, again, I said is very uh, rare to clinically um, see that. But you no longer have to do it just because someone is HIV positive and they have late latent syphilis or syphilis of unknown duration. And there is not a recommendation to do it based on having a higher titer in a person that's HIV positive. So the titer doesn't really matter. You really are just looking for signs or symptoms um, of neurosyphilis. And then, again, remembering that you're going to be asking about visual and auditory things as well. If you can't ascertain the stage and, and really know that a person has been infected within the last year, then you are forced to treat for late latent. So you really want to try to uh, be a detective and gather up the clues to figure out whether it's been within the past year. Your patients will really thank you. Um, if they can recall any signs or symptoms of primary or secondary in the past year on questioning, that's good. Um, if you know that they are a contact to a case, again, public health can potentially help with that. Um, if they have potentially been named, um, or if they have, this is probably the easiest thing, if they've had a negative serology in the past year, non-treponemal serology, that's extremely helpful. And so that tells you that it's been within the past year. It kind of bookmarks it. And so I think getting regular um, RPRs uh, in patients who are HIV infected in clinical care are really important to sort of save them from having to be treated for late latent. We in public health are going to potentially interview your patients um, uh, to, to try to find exposed partners to prevent ongoing infection. Uh, it's great if you want to talk with us and, and learn more. Public health is happy to do that. And also great if we can kind of be aligned in encouraging patients you know, to do that as a primary strategy to reduce the overall levels of syphilis. Um, we can help with tracking down labs and treatment and save your staff a lot of time. So I think that is really something that providers don't take enough advantage of. Even if people have been in other jurisdictions, we have connections to kind of work across jurisdictions to find that. Okay, pay attention to this. If a patient has very classic signs of secondary syphilis and they're in the epidemiologic risk group, but they have a negative RPR, then consider a prozone, that's the prozone phenomenon. And this is a negative RPR, falsely negative in the setting of an extremely high titer. And it occurs because there is so much, uh, there's so much um, uh, antibody present, so much antigen present in antibody that it really does not allow the flocculation and the cross-reactivity uh, to, to occur to actually visually see the change. And you would ask the lab to dilute the specimen and retest uh, to try to find the ideal titer. If there's a delay between the lab draw and a positive RPR and treatment, so someone has the test but they don't come in for two weeks, you want to redraw on the day of treatment because the titer might be going up without you knowing it. And since you're going to follow it down for results of outcome, you really want to make sure you don't um, miss that. Um, what's the maximum time that you can allow between, if you do have to treat them for late latent, what's the maximum time allowable? Clinical experience suggests up to two weeks is okay for non-pregnant adults. Less than nine is better. So encouraging people to aim for seven and then if they get to nine, that's probably fine. But in pregnancy, again, it's really, really strict. It has to be seven days between those doses. 40% of pregnant women are below uh, the necessary levels of drug after nine days. And if a dose is missed, unfortunately, the entire series has to be restarted. So because congenital syphilis is a priority, public health will often try and, and be able to help and even drive people to uh, appointments and things like that. 
Additional screening is important. Women should be rescreened for gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, and trick. They should be screened for all three after they've been treated for one at three months. It's because of continuing infection in the network. And then men should be rescreened at three months as well. Um, consider, uh, you know, that syphilis follow-up testing you all know about, and then HIV testing as well. And then pregnancy testing is really important, and this is because there have been a national, uh, very disturbing increases in congenital syphilis, 36% nationally uh, from 2011 to 2014, and that CNN story is really focusing on California, where we have the second highest rates in the country, and primarily focused in the Central Valley in Kern and Fresno counties, but we are on alert throughout the entire state um, to try and really uh, intervene and address this as a sentinel event for uh, clinical delivery systems and public health. We've failed um, when there is a single case of congenital syphilis. So we're going to prioritize working with partners and clinicians can be helpful in partnering with us to do that. Remembering um, that penicillin is the only acceptable treatment is really important in congenital syphilis and then that seven-day interval is really strict as we talked about. Think about ocular syphilis. There's an MMWR report that really outlined um, some cases from Seattle and from San Francisco that we um, put together. And um, HIV infection was a common thread. Um, very concerningly, two people had permanent visual loss um, who were partners um, in Seattle. And so we don't know if this is just a result of having much more syphilis. And so these very rare but severe occurrences are just increasing in number because syphilis is so much more common or because there are differences in the strains. And there's a lot of lab-based work ongoing right now to look at this answer with specimens from, from these uh, case series. And then finally, I just want to let people know that there's a really good uh, STD clinical and CME resource from the University of Washington that will go over all the STDs that I wasn't able to cover today. And um, it is uh, listed there at the STD uh, UW um, site. And so I would encourage people to go there and, and check it out. So thank you very much for your time and attention. Great, thank you very much. Um, when I was in practice, I can tell you that I had um, your staff person um, staffing the syphilis desk That's on right. speed dial um, because she was amazing, not only tracking serologies locally, but really across the country. If people said, well, I think I may have been treated in Birmingham, for example. Um, and so, um, so it, it, I really would reiterate that. And then also, you know, the, the ocular syphilis thing is not new since in the last four or five years, we've been seeing it for over a decade. And um, obviously, anyone who presents with it should be checked for HIV if they've not been checked, because it's not simply HIV-related. I've seen cases in people with permanent visual loss and without HIV. But, but again, I think all these are important points. Um, the first question that I, that, I, uh, that I wanted to ask was left over from the last sec section is, that would you consider monthly benzathine penicillin uh, for syphilis prep, like we do for cellulitis, occasionally people who have recurrent lymphedema and recurrent strep, um, and uh, are any data? Number one, is there a subset you might consider that? Yeah, no, no data, data-free zone. Um, and you know, people have people have suggested that you know, in in San Francisco, is this is this a way to maybe do mass mass uh, treatment um, as a way to decrease the burden? But you know, we we just the data aren't, aren't there. The data aren't there to do that, and it's not a not an insignificant thing for the person, the patient, to go through, and it's quite difficult to even get benzodine for the people that need treatment right now. So I think that this is this is worth more discussion, as is the doxycycline 
um, strategy. And um, you know, we're hopeful that we can participate as those trials you know, move forward and we're able to get more data. I think your point about bringing us, who, who's coming back for, if you had a hard time locating, coming back for their, initiate their syphilis treatment, repeating the serology, if there's been a lag of five to seven days is real important to get a good baseline. How do you define a treatment failure and, um, and at what point do you do a spinal tap and, and that, that person who has a treatment failure? Yeah, the classic definition says that there should be a fourfold decrease in, in early syphilis within the, in the first 12 months. But I think that gets a little murky because a lot of studies have shown that there's a 15 to 20% of people that don't actually have that at 12 months and it takes them longer. So having had syphilis before might make that decline take a little bit longer. And certainly um, most of our patients are at risk for reinfection during that period as well. So I think it does take kind of teasing out with the patient, are there, is there a risk of re-exposure? Um, and, and again, doing a very careful uh, neuro um, and uh, history of, uh, for visual and auditory changes. Um, I tend to, tend to if, if the patient is, is amenable to follow up and can be found, then I do tend to watch people rather than go straight to LP and recommend that. Okay. Uh, the question, an important one about um, how recommendations for abstinence after treatment for syphilis, for gonorrhea, for chlamydia, does it differ for sight, for men versus women? What do you suggest? Yeah, in general, we have, uh, we have suggested, uh, you know, for gonorrhea and chlamydia, seven, seven days of treatment, and that in, is from the time that the partner also is treated. So we give people treatment to take to their partners, uh, uh, expedited partner therapy, uh, or patient-delivered partner therapy, and so they're supposed to wait um, seven days, not just from the time they've taken treatment, from the time that their partner has. We know that that's not always, uh, that's not always going to happen, and we encourage people to, to use condoms if they're not able to wait for the seven days. Um, and, you know, for syphilis, we, we also talk talk about um, uh, making sure that they are treated and their partners are treated, but it's very challenging. It's the network um, impact of having a large amount of STDs that really, really is the problem. When we, we talk about the three-month recheck, it's not because we think the initial treatment has failed in that patient, it's because that their sexual network, someone is probably still untreated and, and those infections continue for that reason. So this is a specific question, but I think, again, it gets back to this idea of the sort of the, diff, sometimes the difficult clinical decision. Someone who's, what, who didn't seem to respond they got an LP. Um, there was no evidence of neurosyphilis. Mm -hmm. They were treated you know, appropriately with, with the benzathine for the three weeks, then treated for a long course of doxycycline. They're still serofast. Do you just follow those people? Do you retreat? What do you do? Just follow their serology? Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I think we recognize that you know, most people who are serofast have a lower serofast titer. But there have been instances where people have been serofast at 1 to 32 or you know, 1 to 64 is kind of pushing it, but it may not be completely unheard of. So I do tend to, to follow people um, over time. If, if there's been such an extensive evaluation as you just uh, outlined, I would, I would say follow people um, and then sort of keep checking in with them about, you know, signs and symptoms as well before, you know, because there's not much else that, that you can do. If you've done the LP and there's nothing there and you've given them multiple courses of adequate treatment, then I think you sort of follow over time. We have multiple questions about the elderly people with or without dementia, sometimes foreign-born, where we don't have 
um, and um, treatment about tr evaluation and treatment. And I, I, because it's not HIV focused, if those people who ask those questions <coughs> want to talk to Susan after the session, I, that would be great. Um, because I think they're important questions on a case-by-case, -case. but she and her staff are very available. So if you're having problems locally getting answers, then um, by all means use, I think Susan and her staff is a recommended for these individual cases as well. That's right, and there's also a, a network of uh, uh, STD prevention training centers throughout the country, so wherever you live, there, there are clinical resources and um, sort of expert clinicians staffing those centers to help you. There's one in California, right in Oakland, and then they're across the country as well. Um, and um, if there's no skin or mucous membrane lesions, is syphilis really contagious beyond primary? If you can't find a, a, a spot, you know, do you still have to wear a glove if you're a healthcare provider or, or screen? What do you do? What do you do? Well, I think, you know, we don't, we don't, all the lesions are not necessarily uh, immediately obvious. I mean, I, I think that that's something to think about. And, uh, you know, it's, it's possible that um, a person who doesn't have any lesions has, has, true, has true early latent. They don't have any signs or symptoms. We don't think that that stage without any lesions is, is, is truly the, the highly infectious stage. But lesions may not be easily apparent, and people can move, as we said, back from early latent back into secondary and become infectious. Yeah. And there's a good question about, do we need to treat oral chlamydia if it's asymptomatic? Uh, what's the advantage? You know, the most public health, uh, mostly the recommendation is not necessarily even screen in the pharynx. I mean, our, our tests are bundled, so the gnats just sort of come gonorrhea and chlamydia, but uh, chlamydia screening of the pharynx is not really a sort of a recommended necessary public health or clinical strategy in and of itself. If it's there, then you know you have to make the decision: uh, do you do you treat it or do you not not treat it? Most clinicians that I've spoken with just err on the side of treating it if they find it. And I mean, I guess the follow-up question is: that Do people? One of the reasons to screen is that people with concurrent STIs may be an increased risk for acquiring HIV mm -hmm. through that inflamed mucosa. Yeah, is that? true and is there some stratification that's more likely if it's vagina over rectum, more rectum over mouth, or should we treat based on this idea that, well, gee, maybe you can't see symptoms in the oral, but these are people who are being screened because they're at, you know, maybe at risk for HIV and you right. want to just try to decrease that risk. Well, I think that that's a, that's a good point, and I think that's the other reason why we're not as gung-ho on treating chlamydia and the oropharynx necessarily, because there's not an associated risk that's been demonstrated with HIV. That's very different for rectal infections, where a lot of data um, has shown a very marked increase, and it's really dose-related, so it's related to the number of rectal infections people have had over a year in, in terms of HIV incidence in a population. So rectal infections, both chlamydia and gonorrhea, extremely important when we're thinking about um, reducing risk of HIV, and those are the patients that we want to identify and really offer PrEP to as well because of that increased risk. And in terms of um, neurosyphilis treatment, is IV ceftriaxone equivalent to IV PEN-G if someone's having a hard time setting up yeah. um, treatment for, with penicillin-G? Yeah, I think that's a good question as well, because not a lot of people are you know, just not in a position or don't want to be in the hospital for two weeks for, for IV penicillin, and their insurance may not pay for, for a pump to, to actually have uh, portable um, aqueous penicillin. There are limited data, um, sort of case series and very limited data around ceftriaxone. Um, they have mostly been in HIV uninfected people. So uh, on occasion, people have treated their HIV-positive patients with ceftriaxone when we've all felt that there was no other alternative, but we do it with caution and with following really, really closely. 
Um, and I guess the question that comes up is PrEP for, H, uh, for HIV linked to increased risk behaviors in men who have sex with men. And there's a lot of yeah. sort of discussion about this out of certain organizations based in LA. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I'll go unnamed. You know, I think, I think this is something that we have been thinking about. Not necessarily is PrEP causing it, but what are the changes in behaviors that we've seen globally in San Francisco and elsewhere uh, among gay men and uh, other men who have sex with men? And it's not so much that PrEP is it. Uh, more likely what it is is this understanding of how durable and how extraordinarily effective treatment as prevention is. So we've seen the reported decreases in condom use occurring since 2004 in our um, NHBS um, surveillance work with uh, HIV uninfected gay men in San Francisco, and that's true elsewhere as well. So we don't think that um, PrEP itself is causing people to be more risky. We think that the very uh, correct understanding of how effective uh, HIV prevention overall, treatment and PrEP is, and the fact that, frankly, HIV has always been the STD that people, uh, that drives people's behavior and that they're most concerned about. So that's the challenge that I have now in San Francisco and we have nationally, is how are we going to try to reduce rates of syphilis, kind of achieve overall sexual health, knowing that the major driver is concerned about HIV, and we've done a great job of reducing that concern. Um, you would answer the question about LPs and patients with HIV, based on their titer, there's no indication at this point, at least out of most guidelines. What about CD4 count? Mm -hmm. Should you be, even if there are no symptoms, should a CD4 count of 150 or below right. prompt an LP just because of their immune right. status? Well, that was related to the, the, the titer uh, relationship, and, and colleagues at the University of Washington really had, had been the ones, um, based on some studies, to talk about decreased CD4 uh, cell count and higher titer, thir 1 to 32 or above, being an indication for LP. But there really are no data, again, this was really hashed out at the guidelines meeting the last time, there are no data to suggest that, um, that doing the LP in someone who's completely asymptomatic has any a change in the clinical outcome. So at this point, it's not based on CD4 count. It's not based on, on their uh, RPR titer. It's really based on their signs or symptoms. And I think then the, just the burden is on us is to really make sure we're doing that careful history, asking about any auditory and ocular symptoms along with other uh, the classic neuro exam. I think asking about auditory is also critically important. important. We didn't mention it, but we, I've seen cases historically of, of essentially auditory uh, syphilis as well. Yeah. Um, what sample do you use in women for trick screening, urine or vaginal, self-collected or at a time of, of examination? Yeah, I think the, the, the screening um, specimen for women is, uh, is a, a vaginal, vaginal swab um, that can mostly be done. And um, then it can be uh, self-collected. And also, if you're using the nucleic acid amplification platform in the laboratory, it, it can be just done um, very similarly to chlamydia and gonorrhea. It can't all be done on the same swab. It has to be a separate swab, but it can be self-collected and sent to the lab. And then what's the value of screening for asymptomatic trick if a woman has no symptoms? Uh, again, why screen? Um, in uh, HIV-positive individuals, it is, it is a recommendation because there uh, does seem to be a higher prevalence of, of TRIC, and uh, we also know that you know, it can be associated with, uh, with, with worse outcomes, for instance, in, in pregnancy and so on, and even in, in non-pregnant people, it is recommended. But in the general population that are not HIV-positive, it's not recommended for the exact reasons that you, you stated. We, we don't know what the overall population benefit would be. Okay. Again, there are lots of good questions. We've run out of time. I want to thank um, Susan Phillips for really a superb discussion.